Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis, and today, Matt Kane of Hockey Graphs is on the other side of this intro, a very smart, reasonable guy who has put together a model, a mathematical equation, algorithm, whatever you want to call it, that predicts what's going to happen on the free agent market come July 1. Uh, he's done it for the last, I believe, three or four years. And uh, varying degrees of success, he says that he's doing better as the years go on. So listen to this guy, and uh, you might get some insight into what's going to happen uh, come summertime. Uh, quick note, to find his uh, his whole list of UFAs and RFAs and his predictions, go to at Kane underscore Matt on Twitter. And he has a tweet there that is pinned at the top that has a link to his Google spreadsheet. And that's where you'll find uh, everything you need to know about what we're talking about during this episode. And uh, it's episode 92. I'm hoping to get to episode 100 by the end of uh, this transition period from uh, the season to the end of free agency. So mid-July, we'll be at 100 episodes. That's the plan. Uh, so I got to pick up the pace here and uh, hope you enjoy. As always, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, rate, review on iTunes, and subscribe elsewhere on SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, anywhere where you find your podcast. We are there. Make your life easier and just subscribe. All right, thanks for listening, and here we go, Matt Kane. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Here with Matt Kane, editor for Hockey Graphs, presenter at many hockey analytics conference and uh, free agency guru of sorts. Uh, he's based in Boston, used to be from Toronto. He's an Ottawa Senators fan, so figure that one out. Um, and today he released the final round of his free agency predictions. Matt, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. I, I don't think I've ever been called a, a guru before, so this is this is new and uncharted territory for me. I, I'm I'm really excited to to finally enter that level. Yes, it's actually a word that I when I hear people say it, I'm like, what does that even mean? But I just said it, so um, welcome, welcome to the yeah. club. And I don't really know what it means, but you're a guru. Um, so I, I'm I'm getting a tattoo tomorrow. So <laughs> I'm glad that you you've declared it. Guru. Um, so. Obviously, the Stanley Cup playoffs are still going on, but in my mind, the way I'm looking at free agency at this point in time, about 50 days out, is that we're, I should mention we're recording this Monday night, so there is Game 6 of Washington and Tampa uh, that's going to begin about an hour uh, from from when we're talking right at this moment. Um, but So if you factor that in and the fact that Vegas has advanced, that means there's only three teams left, which means that there, according to my calculations, 28 fan bases out there that, although they might watch the cup final, don't really care. They're not really invested in it. So there's 28 other teams that, that we can uh, we can talk about free agency, talk about the draft, and, and it really rings true with them. So let's get this going. It's never too early to talk about July 1st. Um, Oh, for sure. I mean, like, as you said, I'm a Sens fan, so my offseason started really early this year. Um, but I think certainly, like, even from the perspective of looking at teams who are negotiating extensions uh, with their own guys right now, I think, you know, the news cycle is starting to move on to the uh, to the offseason world and looking at where players might end up. And, and you know, other than the, the novelty of Vegas, uh, Stunning the world and, and and making the cut for the first time. I think most most beat writers are, are moving on to free agency and looking at what their teams might look like next year at least. That's a good point. There's a whole other podcast that needs to be dedicated to Las Vegas being in the final. Um, but we'll leave that for another time. The thing about this this free agency crop 2018 is that it's it's not as it's not nearly as sexy or as strong as what we presume will be a very um, upper echelon type of crop in 2019 um as of now 2019 has Eric carlson drew doughty oliver ekman larson uh sergey brabovsky artemi panarin tyler sagan uh blake wheeler those guys are all at this moment in time uh going to be ufas which is just mind mind-blowing but at the same time uh throughout the next 12 months uh they will at least some of them they will resign with their old team so 2019 looks super sexy right now, 
Um, but it might end up being just similar to what we're seeing in 2018, where there's one massive catch, uh, John Tavares, and uh, we'll start with him. Uh, lay it on me. What, do you, what, what does your model say about uh, John Tavares, where he's going to go, or, or what type of term he's going to get, I should say, and how much money he's going to make? Yeah, my, my model is pretty, uh, pretty excited for Tavares. It hasn't projected around uh, around ten point seven million, ten point six million, depending on whether he he sticks around in New York or not. Um, one of the one of the I guess weaknesses or, or traditional weaknesses with the model has really been projecting those super high end players. So someone like Tavares could easily get above what the model projects for him, just because players like that are so rare to actually come around, the model doesn't have a ton of data. And so what you end up seeing is that often they end up being one or two million dollars above. I know Connor McDavid last year ended up, uh, I think, a few million above where my model had him projected. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tavares uh, came in there at all. It definitely views him as almost a sure thing to get a long-term deal. Um, I think, again, that's all based on historical data. As you know, a fan, as an observer of the, of the league, one of the ideas that I love bouncing around is the idea of Tavares taking a super short-term deal at max money to go to a contender and really try to win a cup while he's in his prime. I mean, you can envision him if he's willing to take on sort of the injury risk, um, going to a team that maybe can't afford him in their long-term uh, salary cap structure because they, you know, they may have free agents coming up in a year or two. But if they can bring him on for, you know, a one-year deal at max money or a two-year deal at max money, fourteen million, sixteen million—that that could be a lot more than what he's making this year. And it, it, the chance to win a cup just might be enough for him. So, you know, I, I again hate to say this as a sense fan, but if you're someone like the Leafs who might have the calorie calorie. Uh, salary cap space this year, but won't necessarily, you know, be able to commit to him long term. That's certainly an an option that maybe the data doesn't say is likely to happen, but might be fun to fun to see as a as a fan and observer. Let's rewind a bit. So, how do do you mind going through what what variables are factored into your model and how it spits out? You know, for John Tavares, ten point seven million. You know, you round it round it to that. Um, over eight years, like what, what's going into that calculation? Yeah, for sure. So my model is using basically all of the, you know, standard stats that you'd find on NHL.com. So it's looking at stuff like goals, assists, points, uh, time on ice, block shots, even, even stuff like hits. It throws it all in there and it lets the model really decide what's important. And then it also uses um, more like player individual factors. So things like where they were born, the nationality is a factor, um, their height, their weight, when they were drafted, uh, their current age, whether they're a UFA or an RFA, um, if they're an RFA, if they've reached uh, arbitration eligibility and stuff like that, as well as factors like, you know, how much money did they make on their last contract was obviously um, the last contract is a pretty good indicator of how good they've been as a player and, and what the sort of league thinks of them. And then the biggest factor, or one of the biggest factors in predicting the actual amount of money a player is going to make is the length of the contract that they sign. So uh, I think in a lot of cases, we tend to think of um, players taking less money to get more term. But what really you tend to see when you look at the data is that players who get longer contracts are always going to be the better players and tend to get more money. So if a player is predicted to get a longer contract, um, and contract length is something that I use the same variables to predict, um, to find the probability of any given prop contract length, if we um, use that number as an input into the contract model, then you can get a bit more accuracy uh, by including that predicted length or the actual length of the contract that they, they end up signing. So a two-part question. How many years have you been doing this and how successful has your model been if you, at the end of free agency, look back and go, I got this right, I got that wrong, this one was sort of on the money? Yeah, I've been doing this for, I think this is my fourth off season now. Um, it's gone from being very, very, uh, very good with the lower end players, but sort of weaker in general, to being a lot more accurate over the last two years in particular. 
um, when I sort of made a few tweaks to include uh, more of the contract variables that really helped things out. Last year, I had a model that didn't look at contract length, but it did look at, you know, a player's past salary history, um, as well as a lot of their biographical details, where they were born, um, you know, free agent status, handedness, and all that sort of things. And uh, for the average player, it was within about five to six hundred thousand um, dollars of what they ended up getting. Um, testing out the current version of my model, the model that that I'm basing these predictions off of, on the free agents who signed last year, it was within about um, three hundred to four hundred thousand for forwards uh, on average, or an error of about I think five hundred thousand for goalies. So it's definitely gotten better. I think when I started doing this, the average error was around a million uh, dollars, which is you know it's still for what was a very simple model at the time pretty good. But there's obviously was room for improvement, and I think there's still room to improve. There's definitely features that I'd like to add to the model in, in, in years to come that would um, hopefully help give a more detailed or more nuanced view of a player's uh, potential contract. That's interesting that you include uh, things like their bio, height, weight, nationality. That's something I wouldn't even think about uh, to throw in into the equation. But if if you're getting closer, if you're closing the gap between uh, your predictions and what actually happens in the real world, I mean, I guess those are doing something. One thing with Tavares that um, that sort of I, I look at the number that that it's it's uh, it's kind of shooting out of your model is that I feel like it's going to be more in the 11, 11, 5 range um, just based on sort of the way that the top end of uh, the salary, the salaries across the league are. McDavid's got 12.5. Um, and then you have sort of a, a, a second tier with Kopitar, uh, Taves, Kane, and I think Carey Price. I feel like he's going to slide in above those two. I don't know how high he goes, but I feel like he's going to hit the $11 million mark. And I guess the human element here really comes in, especially with John Tavares, because as we've heard for literally two years, you know, a guy who, you know, is very loyal, a guy who thinks about uh, this situation very deeply and isn't just out there looking for the biggest you know payday possible obviously he wants to get paid obviously his agent is working uh to get him paid but it seems like a bit of a um a rare instance of of one he could sign back with the new york islanders even though i think most people who observe hockey and observe the new york islanders think that's probably a bad idea given what they've given him over his tenure um in terms of support and everything but um, that's definitely in play, at least based on reports and based on the way that he's acted um, throughout this process. So I, I think this this whole situation, especially now that you factor in Lou Lamorello has reportedly um, joined the Islanders in some sort of front office head capacity, whether that's GM or president, uh, remains to be seen. Um, but that's apparently going to happen. And I think that um, that definitely shifts things a little towards the Islanders, given Lamorello's cloud around uh, the National Hockey League and the fact that John Tavares probably looks at Lamorello landing there as some stability, as, as some sort of step forward for the organization. So um, the, the, the guy's going to get paid and um, he's going to get term. It's just it's starting to sort of uh, heat up in terms of uh, the different conspiracies and the different um, ways that this could go. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the Lamorella news is, is certainly a wild card. And, and like you said, I think Tavares is a guy who the loyalty factor is, is something that you can't quite predict. And if he does want to stay in New York, it's, it's going to probably push the money down from what he could have gotten elsewhere. I think, you know, even going back to looking at Stamkos, uh, two years ago or two or three years ago, it, it, it felt as if there were offers out there uh, or there were primed to be offers out there where he were he would be able to get more money and ultimately he, he, he stayed where he thought he had a chance of winning the cup, where he was comfortable, where uh, maybe tax reasons came into play, which are unlikely to, to affect Tavares' decision to stay in New York. Um, but yeah, you, you, you can have a number in your head all, you, all you'd like about you know, a player's comparables, but there's always going to be those guys who um, may take less money to either, you know, stay in a location that they like or, or move to somewhere where they think they have the 
have the best shot at, at winning it up. I, I, I'm with you. That first point you made when we started talking about Tavares about him signing the one-year, you know, just deal that blows, uh, you know, any sort of salary out of the water, you know, four or three million more than McDavid just for one year and, and really goes for it. That would change the whole dynamic of of really the, the UFA system in the league. Someone's Someone has to take that first step and no one has done it. And I don't think it's going to be John Tavares that becomes the first superstar to go, hey, I'm I'm going the NBA route and and doing one year contract or two year contract for for this you know outrageous amount of money, but that I'm actually worth. Um, I, I that would be great from from a fan from a media perspective, but I don't really that would, he would be one of the last guys uh, that I would pick to have that happen. But um, you also bring up Stamkos and they sort of align these two stories of of Stamkos in 2016. You know, two massive talents um, going to market. And then, but have, you know, neither of them, uh, Tavares now, Stamkos then, neither of them let go of their old team, you know, when they when they say broke for the season, or sorry, for the offseason. Stamkos still kept sort of an arm's length, uh, uh, you know, situation there with Tampa. And then it, it sounded like he met with, some few, with a few teams, but ultimately took the hometown discount. And obviously it's worked out well for him. Um, and you think that Tavares is, is, is a pretty similar guy in terms of, you know, X number one pick, uh, this supreme skill, um, hashtag good guy in the room, uh, you know, point per game player. Um, so it's, it's eerily similar. And, and that also tilts tilts me, at least my opinion of the situation, a little uh, closer to the Islanders, though I don't know if I if I were to handicap it. I think I'd it's hard to say. I think that he might sign elsewhere, like just based on the Islanders and, and what they've done for him, like. Even even Matt Barzell coming and then bursting on the scene this year, I don't think that's enough. If I'm Tavares, I'm going too little, too late in terms of building a team around me. Uh, that's perhaps making you hesitate about re-signing back there, and and I'm sure all the arena uncertainty and, and the move to Brooklyn that's looking like it's not a not a move that's going to be for very long um, can't really be helping the situation, but. If you're if you're considering, you know, is this club going to be one of the best teams in the league? In the and I'm, you know, more or less still in my prime. You're probably thinking no, um, but you know, at the same time, teams can turn around their fortunes fairly quickly in today's NHL with either you know a lucky draft pick or with another GM. Uh, gifting you a player or two in, in a lopsided trade. So, I mean, may, maybe what they need to do is keep calling uh, Peter Chiarelli in and, uh, and, and Edmonton and if they can, they can have a few more uh, players off the Oilers roster uh, to, uh, to stock them up. But I don't know if, uh, if I'm John Tavares, if I'm taking the continued uh, free asset pool from Edmonton for granted when I'm making my, my free agent decisions. Yeah, that's. A, I would imagine that won't last forever. Um, in terms of potential landing spots outside of the Islanders, I think, and this is this isn't a breaking news or or a new take, but San Jose makes a lot of sense in terms of the cap space they have there. Uh, Doug Wilson being a guy that goes after big names, um, sort of a low key market, which I think that Tavares seems to be interested in. Um, and then Vegas Golden Knights, um, twenty four million in cap space at least at this moment in time. Uh, they're the shiny new toy of the of the league. Obviously, this season speaks for itself, um, and he would be the main the main guy there. Um, obviously, the spotlight's a little brighter there compared to San Jose, but still, you're in a non traditional market, so um, you know less less uh, I guess hoopla around the team than say in Canada, and and maybe that's something that would appeal to Tavares. Um, the New York Rangers also come to mind with with the amount of cap space that they have. Um, they're right up there with 25 million right now uh, after they purged their roster a bit at the trade deadline. Um, the Rangers would be enticing because I mean it's it, they, they still have some very uh, very important strong key pieces uh, on the roster despite what they did this season with announcing that they were going to rebuild. Um, so I think it could be a quick retool if you get Tavares on board. Those are those are three teams that come to mind. Before we transition to another player, are there any uh, teams that that jump off the page in terms of who you think Tavares might be uh, best suited for? No, I think the the three teams that you named are definitely up there. I think you know Vegas is certainly the, the kind of wild card. I'm I'm 
as much as I'd like to think that, you know, George McPhee and, and his team there were, were totally expecting this cup run, uh, I'd imagine that given the number of players who are, who are coming off the roster at the end of the season, that this is rather unexpected and perhaps making the, the decisions that they have to make in the offseason a bit more difficult. Um, the other team that maybe is, is kind of in the same position in terms of having a bit of unexpected success this season and, and a lot of cap space coming up is the Colorado Avalanche, who, you know, I think with Nathan McKinnon there to to be your star, you know, may, maybe you maybe you look to create that one-two punch um, where you're just uh, sort of deadly down the middle and 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 try to beat teams that way. But I don't know that necessarily that that that's going to be either. That would be an organizational focus of theirs that going forward, just given how how young of a roster that they they seem to have built. Um, that that's looking, you know, at least somewhat promising after after this past season. So if Tavares is the headliner of this uh, of this free agency class, at least on the UFA side, John Carlson's got to be riding shotgun, uh, right-handed defenseman, can anchor a power play, career highs in, in goals, assists, points, uh, played 24, upwards of almost 25 minutes a, a night for Washington, um, led every defenseman in scoring this season, had a really good playoffs, like, he this couldn't have gone better for John Carlson and props to him but at but that sort of that adds a buyer's beware uh asterisk to to his situation what do you think of of Carlson going to free agency in terms of what he'll get what your model says and uh, what you think of him as a player in general yeah i mean i definitely think john carlson is is the buyer beware type um you certainly always worry when a guy is coming off of a career year uh whether he's going to be able to keep it up I think John Carlson, if he had played the way he has the rest of his career last season, he would have been in line for a very nice payday where he would be very comfortable for the rest of his career with, you know, probably pretty reasonable expectations of him. I think at this point, my model isn't projected at, you know, a max term deal for, you know, 8.4 to 8.6 million dollars, which feels like a lot of money to me. Um, you know, you never know whether GMs are going to start to balk at that, whether they're going to say, we've been burned one too many times uh, by these types of deals, by these guys coming off of career years. But at the same time, he's in the conference finals right now, and you always think that there's got to be some sort of a bonus to those guys who are playing late into the season, who are staying on GMs' minds, who, you know, maybe the GMs are getting more of a chance to see them and, and see them ultimately at, at a place where they're probably pl- playing well. So I think he's going to get, you know, a big deal this offseason. I don't know necessarily whether the team that signs it, whether it's Washington or somewhere else, is, is going to be too happy with it a few years down the line. But uh, I think he's he's in line for a big payday, whether whether or not it's uh, it's well deserved or not. Yeah, you bring up GMs. You know, maybe this is the year that they smarten up. My only rebuttal to that would be it only takes one guy across the whole league that decides they're going to go all in on on John Carlson or a guy who, who's maybe feeling the heat and feels like he needs to make some some big splash in free agency. Um, yeah, he's he's. He's most likely going to get at least eight million, I think, and and whatever term he wants. Maybe he doesn't want um, seven or eight years. I don't know. Most most players want term, but I think that it's going to be on the table. It just it's just the stars are all aligning, especially when you consider stuff like uh, you know the actual crop of defensemen available. Mike Green's probably the second best, depending on you know how you view guys like Calvin DeHaan and and. You know, an assortment of other uh, decent but not great uh, NHL defensemen, and then also the fact that he's a right-handed defenseman that just that puts his value through the roof. Uh, you look around the league, and so many teams are struggling filling their right side. It's just it's kind of a weird thing going on in the league where uh, right-hand defensemen are just so valued and and rightfully so, but. Um, it's just the stars are aligning here for Carlson to really cash in uh, on the money side and then also on the term side. Yeah, for sure. He he picked a, the right year. I, I mean, I, I don't know if he could have foreseen what, what the free agent class would have looked like when he signed his last deal, but he definitely uh, he definitely wound up in the in the probably best possible free agent class he could at the best time to also have a 
a career year for him. And, and like he said, going going down the list of UFA defensemen, it's pretty slim pickings. Um, I don't. I, I think there will be a GM out there who's willing to roll the dice and say John Carlson is going to be our number one defenseman for the next at least five years or so. Um, if just to even if they sign him to a longer deal, um, expecting that he'll maybe decline in the next few years, I'm sure that there's the hope that he can he can maybe maintain this level of play uh, for four or five years and, and get them decent value out of that contract. Yeah, I would think that New Jersey and Colorado are two teams that that will at least be be kicking tires in regards to the way that Carlson would impact their defense their defense corps like just automatically being able to slide into the number one uh role i mean does carlson deserve the number one role in in terms of you know who who he's going to play against and how do you define who's your number one defenseman that's up for debate but yeah the guy can quarterback a power play that's that's been well documented and um the both those teams have have the cap space both those teams have um, the holes in in their in their defense that it would make a lot of sense. So those are two teams that I thought about. Um, also Buffalo, just because it seems like they're in transition here, and and Darlene will be coming in, and he's not going to solve uh, that that train wreck of a of a defense. So so maybe adding Carlson in the same summer all of a sudden kickstarts uh, what what they want to do in the future here because it sounds like uh, they're one team that's going to really. Uh, shake things up this off season. So hey, why not add Carlson in the in the process? Yeah, I, I have to imagine that Buffalo, with the the years and years and years of, of rebuilding, might just you know one of these days they're going to take the the chance and say you know this is the free agent class we go we go all in on and maybe we we try to dive in and make a few big splashes and you know if it doesn't work out then ultimately you're you're the you're the GM who's just you know, overseeing another year of, of futility for Buffalo, which maybe isn't the, the the worst thing that could happen to you given the years years of futility. I don't know that the the expectations there are are super high. So maybe you do take your shot and say, you know, let's let's spend a little in free agency and let's put some talent around the young guys that we we think are there and that maybe just don't have the supporting cast. Um, if it's John Carlson, you know. It might be he might be the guy that he gets you enough years, and then you find the the willing buyer, the team that's that's looking to take on a contract to hit the cap floor or whatever, which has ultimately always been an option for a lot of teams over the past few years. You you haven't really seen all that many teams get stuck with a contract that they ultimately can't move uh, without you know maybe giving up an asset or something. So. There, there's definitely risk, I think, in, in giving a guy like Carlson over $8 million, but ultimately, if you have to move him and, you know, he's not going to constrain your cap space over the next few years, at least, to the degree where you're unable to develop internally, then he might be a shot worth taking simply for the fact that, you know, if you acknowledge you'll have to move on from him at a loss, you at least know that up front and can plan for that in the future. To move forward, if, if Carlson is the Kevin Shattenkirk of this class, for looking back to 2017 in that crop, then I think Evander Kane would be the Alexander Radulov of, of this class. By the way, as a side note, last year's uh, free agency class, like I look back today, it was pretty bad. <laughs> there wasn't much out there. Radulov was one of the best, Shattenkirk. Uh, and then it got it got down to like, you know, Martin Hansel. And I mean, Joe Thornton re-signed with his old team, so that didn't really count. And there was there was very little in, uh, intrigue there. So as much as 2019 is is what we're all looking forward to, I think we should be thankful that we're not stuck with with the players of last year. Um, so with Kane, your model says 7.3 million over four years. Uh, what 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 do you think uh, is behind that? I mean, he's he's the young scorer, and I think that that teams are going to you know probably be lining up for him as they have every every off season for you know who can count how long um ultimately if you if you have a, a goal scorer teams are going to 
probably end up overpaying for a UFA goal scorer, not realizing that for a lot of them, their best years come earlier in life. Uh, obviously, not to the degree that, say, a shutdown defenseman may struggle to keep up with the game as they enter their 30s. Um, scoring forwards will will likely age a little bit better, but you know there, there's still sort of that risk of signing anyone, any scorer be into their 30s for a long-term deal. Now, my model only has Kane predicted it at a four-year deal, so if you could get him signed for that much, then then perhaps it's a it's a, a reasonable uh, risk to take, and and you don't have to worry too much for the downside, but. There, there's definitely a push for teams to add more term as a way to get more players under the cap without necessarily setting themselves up for, for long-term success because you end up with all these heavily weighted contracts when the players are in their decline. So how does your model exactly figure out the, the term? Like why four years for Kane? Why not seven or eight or five? So it uses basically the same variables for that it does to predict a player's cap hit. Uh, the trouble with predicting term is really that um, if you want to look at the probability of each term, there's a lot of variability from player to player. So right now it has Kane projected at a four-year term, but it only thinks that there's a 22% chance it'll get a four-year term. It also thinks that there's like a 21.7% chance he'll get a five-year term. So it's really very flat over a long-term deal, I think what it makes more sense to say is that it thinks he'll get a longer-term deal. Um, one of the difficulties is just that, you know, from team to team, um, how these contracts work, and even looking at um, whether a player is re-signing with their own team or with a new team, it's kind of difficult to figure out whether, whether they're going to be a five-year or a six-year or a four-year. So there's certainly, within the model to predict term, a lot more variability um, one of the things I do look at is looking at predicting the contract value over all sorts of different terms for a player. So, for example, for Evander Kane, um, he's going to get you know a different amount on a seven or an eight-year term um, than he would on a four-year term, for example. But they're all going to be in the same ballpark. It's when you start to get to the lower terms that that it, it may start to go down a little bit because it starts to think that those are bridge deals or weaker players rather than, you know, an, an all-star who's getting a, a longer-term deal. It, it, it kind of makes sense with Kane and, and a shorter-term deal around four years, three years, uh, somewhere in that range because, you know, he's, at least from a team perspective, it would be it would be a smart move. The guy's 26, uh, scores about 25 goals per 82 games, generates a ton of shots, can play on your, your first power play. Like, but at the same time, you know, he's a big body. Maybe by the time he hits 30, he starts wearing down. He plays a physical game. Maybe the injuries start to, to kind of kick in. I feel like you, you kind of you go after him with a lot of money and, and short term. When I was thinking about landing spots, I think San Jose, honestly, would, would make a lot of sense if he signed there again. Um, just based on the comments that, that Kane delivered to the media on his way out. Uh, and during his, his short tenure there after the trade deadline and also his teammates and the GM. And I understand they're probably not going to <laughs> throw him under the bus and say, oh, it was a terrible experience, etc. But it seemed like they were going out of their way to, to say we would, like, uh, we would like you back. And then Kane saying I would at least consider coming back to San Jose. Um, Edmonton would maybe be another uh, option. Just, I mean, it's pretty obvious that they could use a skilled winger. Um, Carolina as well. Uh, they've talked about being tougher to play against, and also they desperately need goal scorers. Uh, anyone who can just put the puck in the net at will, which which Kane can uh, on most nights. So those are three teams that that come to mind right away. Uh, what about you? Do you have any teams that that you're keeping a close eye on in regards to Vander Kane? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think I always tend to default to you know players are are going to at least put a little bit more weight on clubs that they played for, cities that they played in, simply because I think you know like all human beings, I guess there's an element of familiarity there. You're more comfortable. You know what the city is going to be like. You know what the fans are going to be like. You've probably played for the coach before, so you have a sense of that that expectation. So 
Whether that plays in consciously or not to his decision, I certainly think it gives San Jose the leg up there. Um, maybe somewhere like Arizona, where they're, you know, it feels like for years and years and years now they've um, been sort of rebuilding and they had a, a really great second half of the year this year, um, have a lot of cap space, have, um, I think Dave Boland is still on their cap and, and he's coming off next year. So they're, they're going to be freeing up cap space. And even if they do have, you know, all those free agents to resign, all their, all their, all their young guys coming up, um, they'll likely have the cap space to, to fit someone like Kane in, um, to be sort of a, a complimentary player to all their, their great young talents. Uh, what about James Van Riemsdyk? Where do you, uh, how much do you think he will get paid, at least according to your model? So Van Riemsdyk is a really weird one, and, and he's one that I've gotten a lot of hassle over Twitter on his project, projection being low. Uh, I actually dug a little bit more into it. I haven't projected it being a, a three-year, $5.4 million deal, which, you know, for a guy who scored 30 goals, seems exceptionally low. Um, if you go out beyond three years, his, his cap hit starts to climb, you know, pretty quickly. He gets up to around the $6 million range for, for a five- to eight-year deal. So that, that feels a little bit more um, consistent with what you'd expect for a guy who's really been, you know, a premier goal scorer. Uh, the model doesn't view him as like super likely to get a long-term deal. It's about 40% for more than five years. Um, so it's, it's leaning to more towards the shorter-term deals. The major factor in that is that Van Riemsdyk really just, he wasn't the go-to guy for Toronto this year. I think he was in the middle of the league in time on ice per game amongst forwards. Um, obviously, for the Leafs, with all that forward depth, it's a lot easier to slide someone like JBR down the lineup. And so maybe he wasn't fully being used to his potential there. And, and maybe he's someone who the model is probably undervaluing uh, both what he's likely to get and, and what he's what he's earned. I think I definitely think with someone like JBR, maybe the downside risk to him of a long side or of a long term contract is a lot less simply because he's so good on the power play. And, um, it feels like one of those skills that, particularly in today's game, might age a little bit better than than someone who's um, constantly relying on their you know physical game to win at even strength. We've seen a lot of cases with someone like you know Thomas Vanek where their their power play production really just becomes their go-to weapon, and they can continue to be effective contributors you know well into their into their 30s, even if the rest of their game starts to slow down. And it's a lot easier when you can still get that power play production out of them and then maybe slot them into the fourth line. So I think if, if I'm looking at adding, you know, one of these sort of tier two forwards, the guys below Tavares um, this year, then, then JVR is definitely a guy who, whether it's at the level that I predicted or even a little bit higher, uh, might have a bit more upside than the other guys. Would you say this is an instance where you disagree with your model or at least you you look at it and go, it's missing something here because 36 goals going into free agency, uh, only 29. You think this guy's going to get a big payday and 5.4 seems pretty underwhelming. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, there's players all the time where you you look at their numbers and you just, that the model's predicting and you know that, you know, the model is off here and there, there are various reasons for that. A lot of the times it's just the player's top-line stats don't match sort of the, the, the stats that are lurking below the surface for them. So someone like JDR, who scored a ton in not necessarily first-line ice time, is, is obviously a prime example of that. Um, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty safe to say, at least from my point of view, that he's likely to earn more than what the model projects. I'm very curious to see how far above it he does end up going, um, because there is sort of there's again the risk that he's he's not going into his prime. He's sort of exiting his prime, and and if he gets that long term deal that I'm sure he'll be seeking, how 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 much money are you willing to commit to someone who, you know, his best years are are maybe behind him, even if he does age in the best case scenario. He's also a bit of a one trick pony in terms of. Uh, yeah, he's an excellent net front guy. Like, I'm not going to deny that. Like, what he does, which is score goals from you know a foot or two from the crease, is is right up there. It's very valuable. But defensively, 
kind of subpar. Um, you wonder if he peaked last season in terms of uh, his luck or just you know being able to fool goalies or, or defensemen uh, in close like that. You wonder if 36 is is the best that he's gonna gonna give you. Um, and yeah, I, I like it's one of those things where I just know he's going to get paid. Do I think that it would be smart for teams to you know uh, back up the the truck to his front lawn and dr- just dump all this money? I, I don't I don't think so. But just based on how the NHL works and who's available, and uh, you know, if even if you break it down underlying numbers wise in terms of goals per per sixty minutes, like it's it's through the roof because he, like you said, he the guy just was buried in Toronto's uh, forward group, um, and he's also you know a, a great thinker of the game, always stays in shape. So there's a lot of pros, but then there's these these cons that sort of make you hesitate if if you're thinking long term. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you brought up the point about him being a one-trick pony, and, and that's the, the, the one tough thing for me to say is, you know, he's very clearly a one-trick pony, and everyone knows that trick, and yet it still just keeps on working for him. So whether, whether he's just he finds little ways to, to adjust his game to, um, to make sort of the tweaks he needs to get by, or like you said, if he's just sort of gotten lucky and, and you know, that, that advantage that he's had over, over this year and the past few years will, will disappear suddenly is, is really the key question. I think, you know, ultimately when you're, when you're paying for unrestricted fee agents, you have to go into it knowing them that you're ultimately getting them more money per win than you would give to a restricted free agent. But the reason that you're doing that is that you get to add a player without going through all the uncertainty of um, trying to figure out, you know, what their true talent level is, trying to predict a prospect, all that sort of thing. So uh, you kind of hope that you 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 don't overpay too much. I think is the best that you can do with a with a UFA. One interesting name to compare James Van Riems like to is David Perron. He's a year older. Um, who, who, and he surprisingly, I looked at just his counting stats, and I hadn't realized that this guy's basically guarantees you forty points a year. Ends up getting sixty-six points in seventy games this year, uh, playing second line five on five minutes for for Vegas. Skates on, you know, the power play, uh, like a valuable guy. But your your model kind of goes the other way, where where it's it seems to be undervaluing JVR. It seems to be overvaluing, at least through my lens. Uh, David Perron, it's saying six point seven million over four years. Was that surprising to you, or do you see Perron in that range just in general? Yeah, no. The, the he the difference I think between JVR and Perron is is perhaps the thing that that surprised me the most. And maybe if you'd you'd sort of split the difference on the two of them, it, it would have been a little bit closer um, to where where you see it going. Um, with Perron, I think maybe the this. These aren't factors in the model, but I think the, the things that could play in his favor and could get him closer to that are, number one, that he, he is playing for Vegas, and uh, there's probably that sort of bias towards re-signing with your old team. And if he's going to do that, there's just going to be a ton of money available in Vegas for them to throw at him. Um, and, you know, it'll depend on to what degree George McPhee decides that, you know, the roster he had this year was critical to their success versus how much of it was uh, Gerard Gallant or how much of it was was luck, for example. Um, But you definitely think that as someone who's come up with a roster and, and, you know, led them on a a cup run, um, he could get a little bit of that sort of that visibility bonus that, that seems to come up for free agents all the time. Yeah, he's he's making three point seven five million right now. You, you would think that he's gonna be close to doubling that, if not doubling it. Um, yeah, he's he's cashing in. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about some of your favorite potential value signings. Is there when you look at the UFA list? Let's ignore the the RFAs uh, for for at the end of this podcast. We'll touch on them a bit, but just UFA wise, is there are there any names that you go? If I'm an NHL team, if I'm in their front office, I'm bringing uh, this name and, and all the statistics and, and all the nuances of their game to them and saying we need to sign this guy for, I don't know, a million, two million, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to I've got two sort of UFA picks that are that I think are a little under the radar. Maybe one is not so under the radar. 
Um, but I'll start with, with Chris Weidman from Ottawa, who, you know, was injured for most of this season. I think my model hasn't predicted around, you know, two years, one million, or one year, one million. Um, but if you look at one of the major differences in Ottawa's team from last year to this year, uh, it was really missing Chris Weidman in the second half of the year, where he was the, the you know, the captain of their second power play unit. Um, he played third pairing minutes and provided, you know, a little bit of that offensive upside. Um, he kept many significantly worse defensemen off of the, off of the ice for long periods of time. Um, and he feels like the kind of guy who you can get on a very cheap deal. You could put him on your third pairing and you could give him some power play minutes. And it's just a relatively low risk, but potentially high reward move. That injury is something that is going to drive his dollar down or his value down. But he is the kind of guy who's had a limited experience, um, some success last year. Um, so he, I, I think he's one guy who, you know, if you're looking for a value add where if you have to shelve him in the minors for a while, there's probably, you know, not a ton of risk in someone like him. Okay, I, I, I would throw... And, yeah, I was, I was just going to add, I mentioned him a little bit earlier, but Thomas Vanek is as sort of the archetype of the, the modern-day power play specialist who, you know, you really don't want him out there at 5v5. Maybe you put him out there just because you have to play all your forwards. But um, one of the things that I, I, I wrote about in... Um, Rob Bullman's hockey abstract this past year was this idea of like the really super specialized power play specialist, the kind of guy who, you know, plays fourth line minutes, but then goes out and scores a bunch of goals or get, gets a bunch of points on the power play. So Thomas Vanek was kind of the archetype of this and has kind of continued to be. Um, but someone like Sam Gagne as well for the Blue Jackets two years ago basically played a similar role. And um, one of the findings that I, I had in that chapter was that you know, teams that do look for this very, like, specialized power play player role tended to do a little bit better on their power play. Now, the number of teams that have actually, you know, had a fourth-line guy on the power play consistently is pretty small, but they did have a slightly horror, slightly higher goal-scoring rate when they did have him. So he's projected, I think, on a, on a one-year term around $3 million or so. So, you know, if you can add a few... Um, extra goals on your power play teams are always looking for that edge there. That's that's one guy that I think I consider at least. Yeah, Vanek's one of those guys uh, that just always seems to be a free agent or or seems to be available at the deadline. There's a couple of those that are reappearing again this summer. Uh, Lee Stepniak, Radom Verbata, Christopher Stieg. That group of four, I swear, uh, like clockwork, every deadline, every free agency, they're, they're available. And someone ends up taking them they're still in the national hockey league but it seems to to take a little longer than it should given that they can provide you know they might not be the best all-around players but they can provide something to your team like a vanek on the power play um in limited fourth line five five v five minutes so um that's a good one um i i i thought of Derek ryan uh it's hard to say what it, what what he's gonna kind of yield on on the free agent market because he's he's up there in age. He's a, a classic late bloomer in terms of him taking forever to get to the National Hockey League. Um, but uh, his his shot attempt numbers are are through the roof. Fifty seven percent Corsi in a thousand five and five minutes last year. Mind you, he's playing for Carolina, so you have to factor in uh, the system and the team that he's on. Uh, you know how much of that was Ryan, how much of that was the team, but yeah, he wins faceoffs, uh, 38 points in 80 games on a weak offensive team. So you add all that up, and I think I wouldn't mind having him, uh, you know, as my fourth line center or something, uh, in in a in a role further down the lineup at at a lower uh, price tag. And and um, I wonder I wonder what happens with him because it's it's sort of uncharted territory for for a guy who's who's only played two NHL seasons but is is a veteran. Yeah, I mean Derek Ryan was was another guy that that I'd sort of uh, picked out as I was going down my list as a as a potential value pick. The the thing that really stood out to me with Derek Ryan was that I think he shot something like thirteen percent or so over the past two years on a Carolina team that was basically the epitome of the, you know, the high coursey team that, that can't score a goal or, or save a save a shot to uh, to save their lives. So, you know, to be the guy who's actually putting the puck in the net on 
on that sort of team, while at the same time still having those strong possession numbers. Um, I think he had pretty good relative possession numbers as well. Uh, he definitely feels like the kind of guy that, that you know, could fly under the radar and could be that, that bottom six piece that a lot of teams need to really um, complement the, 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 a, a sort of top-heavy or, or star-heavy lineup. Okay. Is there anyone else that you want to touch on before we get to some RFAs? No, those were the guys that, that really stood out to me from the UFA perspective. The RFAs are always uh, are always more interesting just because there's more more potential for chaos if someone ever ever goes for an offer sheet. Yeah, what, what would you say, or, or uh, I should rephrase that, how does your model react to, to the difference between an RFA and a UFA? Does it know that like there's a whole different ball game involved with um, you know arbitration rights or no arbitration rights or just the fact that they can't really leave the team that they're they're already with? Yeah, the, I mean the model knows uh, which players are RFAs, which players are arbitration eligible. It knows their age and everything, so it can pick out all of those factors. And if you look at the predictions, you do see that. Um, a lot of the RFAs end up getting grouped together. You can see that the model is like pretty good at identifying which are the RFAs who are likely to get long-term deals versus which are the RFAs who are likely to get um, more short-term or bridge contracts. Um, so it, it, in whatever way it's doing it under the hood is, is taking advantage of that information and really feeding it into the projections um, when it does come up with its sort of comparable player list, for lack of a better term, uh, to, to create each player's projection. Now, I was on your uh, Twitter timeline or on your account uh, earlier, at uh, Kane underscore Matt, by the way, C-A-N-E underscore Matt, um, and I noticed that people seem to be uh, asking you a lot of questions about Mark Stone because your model says 8.8 million over four years. And I'll be honest, I, I'm a big Mark Stone fan, but that seems that seems a little high. It, it, so I, I've been running this, this model or, or the, the older version and then this model for, for the last few months. And Mark Stone is consistently becoming out as, you know, a $8 million plus player. And um, he started out the season obviously really hot, and then he got hurt. And so I, I assume that as the season went on, you know, that advantage he had, he would sort of slip down into maybe the $7 million range. But I felt like every time I did an update of this, he wound up being, he wound up being even higher than he was before to the point where I just sort of gave up and, and assumed that the model knew something I didn't know about him. But he, it feels higher than what I would, you know, just have intuitively guessed. Uh, it feels even higher than what I think Ottawa could potentially afford to pay him. Um, I think the sort of the the one factor that's um, maybe skewing things here is that Leon Dreisaitl really kind of uh, moved the market around for RFA forwards last year when he signed his $9 million deal. So I think, you know, absent of that deal, absent of the model knowing that deal, maybe he would have gotten a little bit lower. Um, but I think that's that's certainly a, a factor coming in when you look at you know this sort of point per game RFAs that have been have been signing recently. Oh, that's a good point. I sometimes I forget that Drysital was was offered uh, the world by by the Oilers and obviously he took it and and how that affects things moving forward because I I don't know lined up next to each other Mark Stone Leon Drysital given what they've offered us in their careers like stone might even might be the guy that you take i i don't know there's something about his game that i that i really enjoy and i know that your model also likes counting stats that you know block shots takeaways giveaways that type of stuff and i feel like stone shows up well in those yeah he's definitely the, the type of guy where the model's going to notice his his ability to play the sort of the defensive counting stats game um, the shorthanded ice time for what he has there as well um, so those are all going to be like little pluses for for his total, but yeah, he's he's. I think you know having having had the season that Ottawa had, um, and he's maybe flown a little bit further under the radar than people thought. But I don't know necessarily that you know Eugene Melnick is opening up his pocketbook to to write an eight and a half million dollar check for for Mark Stone this this off season. Yeah, and then there's William Nylander, your model says seven million uh five years. That seems uh a little high, but 
Mm. It, 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 that one's tough. I Yeah, I, I think that Nylander, the, the, the big factor that maybe the model can't take into account here is the fact that, you know, they, they're going to have to re-sign Austin Matthews next year. They're going to have to re-sign Mitch Marner next year. Um, or potentially this offseason as well, I suppose. Uh, so there, there's going to be a lot of moving parts for them to figure out. Um, I think Nylander probably seven, $7 million felt like a, about fine to me when you look at, you know, maybe Johnny Gaudreau as a, as a comp, comparable player out in Calgary. Um, he signed his deal a year or two ago. And I think if you, you know, take into account where the cap has gone since then, they're, they're roughly in the same ballpark at, at $7 million. So, you know, I, I think most teams, if you were, if you were looking at William Nylander on their, on their own, seven million probably feels like you know plus or minus half a million the the right ballpark. But but definitely the complication with them having to um, re-sign two other really big forwards um, will make things tough. It could end up working in their favor if they're able to sort of say you know we're going to try to get you all on on comparable deals and maybe maybe they'll go for that or maybe they won't. Um, but it, it, it might be something where they can sort of say, look, we, we can't afford to pay you all what we ideally would like to, but we'll, we'll try to pay you each fairly and, and get them all on a decent deal there. You know, if you're dubious, you sort of pitch it as like, look, we only have so much money and Marner's going to command this and Matthews is going to command this. So this is what we have left for you, even though you're technically the first one who's negotiating. Also, Connor Hellebeck, uh, you, you wouldn't think that a guy who went out um, in the in the Western Conference Final, who had a good playoff, had an excellent regular season, um, would have been on a one term or sorry one year deal. But uh, it wasn't that long ago that he was seen as a work in progress. Um, so he's that actually works out really well for Connor Halbeck, having that one year to prove himself. While Steve Mason was supposed to be a guy who was either pushing him uh, as the veteran or the guy who was actually the one A versus Halbeck being the one B. Um, it's it's funny how it works out, right? I'm assuming Hellebuck would have rather last offseason signed a long-term deal but got the one year, and now he's probably laughing to the bank because of what's transpired in Winnipeg uh, in terms of his performance, the team's per- performance, and and him uh, going to the negotiation table with arbitration rights. So your model says $7 million over four years. Do you think uh, if you're just thinking about Matt Cain, not Matt Cain's model, is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's likely where he's about to end up. I think that you know, definitely, if you're if you're Winnipeg, like you said, you're probably wishing that you'd you'd made this deal last year um, before you really uh, had to watch him blossom into blossom into the darling of the West. Um, I think that you know the 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 tricky thing is obviously you know it's it's one year and he's turning into the goalie that that they probably thought he had been, but. Goalies are, are are notoriously difficult to project out. So, um, do you end up getting good value there? Um, you might think so intuitively, but it's it's really hard to say. So, I, I think that that if you if you've been Winnipeg, who has struggled with goaltending for so many so many years, with Andre Pavlik, um, you probably are willing to just pay for the guy who's given you the given you the run, who's gotten you to the conference finals and, and, you know, just take the risk that maybe he doesn't turn into, into, uh, into a pumpkin at the, at the stroke of midnight on July 1st. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, William Carlson, your model has him at 5.5 times six years. Uh, he has arbitration rights. He is perhaps the most interesting RFA. Uh, if you look at it from a perspective of what he's done in one year versus previously in his career and how that's all thrown together uh, to project what he's going to be doing in the future. Um, what are your thoughts on Carlson in general? And, and why do you think your um, your model's a little, I'd say it's a little down on him in terms of, uh, you know, 43 goals this season and it only saying 5.5. Um, I don't think that that's outrageous uh, from, you know, a big picture perspective. Uh, when you think about what he has done over his career and how unlikely it was that he got 43 goals this year and the high shooting percentage. I don't think that's crazy, but I'm surprised a little bit that your model goes, uh, that it notices that and goes, hold on a second. Uh, well, let, let's think back to, to William Carlson before the Golden Knights. Yeah, I was actually, when, when I when I first started running these, I was really curious where he was going to end up. It, 
with his like torrid start to the season in in uh, just in terms of goal scoring and i think five and a half is it's probably more than you know matt kane as the gm would really like to um commit to a player who's had basically one really good season and then a few you know okay seasons um the guy that i kind of come back to with the the one very good season is jonathan chichu uh God, it was probably about 10 years ago now where, where he was scoring 40 goals or something and then um, look at kind of where he ended up. Um, so I'm, I'm really skeptical that, that, you know, we see the same William Carlson next year. Is it possible that he's still, you know, a consistent 20, 25 goal scorer and a year and five and a half million? For sure. But um, I, I don't know that he's going to be a 40 goal scorer. And so I think if you're looking for fair value, then, you know, the five and a half million is probably going to get you a lot closer than, than, uh, than other amounts. Yeah. I think you're onto something there. A couple of other names that, uh, pique my interest, uh, Joe Thornton, uh, coming off fully torn MCL ACL, uh, from the playoffs. He's 38. Don't get me wrong. One of my favorite players to watch, especially, uh, during his prime, but also as as he's grown older and not really lost a step, um, but I I see that as uh, as a as a guy who um, it would be a red flag. I mean, one year max. If I was a team, um, he's probably gonna mind you. He's probably gonna resign with San Jose. But let's say he tests the market. Um, I I would be very wary. Um, James Neal. I feel like he's kind of overrated in terms of. Uh, you know, he's always known as this this goal scorer, this 30, 40, 40 goal goal scorer. He's he I feel like he peaked uh, a few a few years ago, five years ago or so, and that he just hasn't um, you know lived up to those expectations that that have been. And it's not really his fault, just by media or fans or whoever that think that he's this you know upper echelon guy. Um, Rick Nash is a, a guy who I think about similarly to to James Neal, except maybe. To a further extreme, where I, if I was a GM, I probably wouldn't even entertain the idea. Um, uh, he's he's getting injured a lot. He's he's 33 already, uh, past his prime. Like I said, similar to, to Neil, where the the sort of myth of the player has has overtaken uh, it, their actual value at this point in time in 2018. Um, and then Jack Johnson is one other name that when I'm looking at the list of. Uh, of UFAs uh, in, in this class that I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen there because there was stories about his financial situation where he wanted out of Columbus despite the team doing well because he just he wants to make as much money as possible because of what's happened uh, to his bank account over the years, um, you know, legal disputes and, and family issues. And I understand that from his perspective, but if I'm a team, I'm, I'm given the way that his offense is tailed off, given that he's 31 and just – doesn't seem to be the same player as he was when he was, uh, you know, maybe in his mid twenties. I would, I would be standing off. Are, are there, are there any players that that you know we mentioned Byron beware with John Carlson a bit, but are there any players other than the ones I mentioned, assuming that you agree with me, uh, that you would be uh, hesitant to really uh, throw, uh, throw a bunch of money at? Yeah, I mean the 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 one that sort of stands out to me is Patrick Maroon, who's who's basically racked up a ton of points in Edmonton. Uh, Getting to play play alongside Connor McDavid for a while over the last uh, last little while, so he he's one that my model has him projected around uh, I think around five million dollars a year on on sort of a four to five year deal that you know he he is definitely you know he might turn into a, a reasonable goal scorer, but I, I'd be very wary without being able to see his results um, away from Edmonton. For, for a significant period of time to really commit to a a longer term deal to him where where you're you're going to be making him a significant piece of your top six going going forward um, the other thing that I'm just sort of curious about and it may not be overpaying but I'm really curious to see what what uh, Vegas does with a bunch of their with all of their unrestricted or RFA defensemen because um, they have they they're going to need to fill out I think most of their defensive core going forward and they've got guys like Shea Theodore and, and Colin Miller who, you know, have, have played roles in their in really getting them to the cup. And so I'm I'm curious to see whether my my model is them predicted to be on sort of short term bridge deals. 
Um, but I'm curious to see if they can take maybe the, the, the sort of Nashville route where they give them a bit more term and, and commit to them younger and, and really get them signed for more reasonable deals that set them up for a foundation for success going forward. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Sort of, you know, Ryan Ellis, uh, Roman Yossi, those sort of contracts where it's, you know, even like one or two years into the into the, the contract, everyone's going, wow, what, what a deal that they got him on. Because I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't say that that's a crazy thing to do if you're Vegas because what you've seen from Shea Theodore and Colin Miller seems very sustainable to me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, the big risk to that strategy, at least from from proposing it, is that the, the players and their agents sort of catch on to it early and figure out that, you know, we've seen what happens in Nashville and we don't, we, we'd rather take the sort of the bridge deal and, and you know, bet on ourselves and, and hope that in, in two years' time or whatever, they're in a much better negotiating position. And, you know, maybe going to a cup finals gives them that leverage, gives them that confidence to do it. But I, I think, you know, if you look at Nashville's sort of sustained success over the last two years, I think a big part of that is that they were really able to um, to continue to add pieces and to, to really not have to give up the core of their lineup because they did have their, their defensive unit uh, assigned to, to reasonable deals going forward early on. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other uh, players that, that you want to get up on your soapbox on and, and, and talk about heading into free agency? Uh, the, the one I'm curious to see, the, the only other one that the name has really been standing out to me is Mike Green, who you mentioned earlier, who my, my model has projected as being, you know, a sort of five-year, five-and-a-half million-dollar player. And, and, you know, personally, I don't see him, him getting that much. I think, you know, obviously playing in Detroit probably hasn't hasn't helped his numbers. Um, but I'm still kind of curious to see where he ends up and to see whether that, that sort of that reputation that he has of, of, of old carries through to his his new contract and if he can, you know, going forward really, if he can be sort of that third pairing but, you know, offensive contributor player that they that uh, that I think, you know, Detroit really hoped he would be. Matt Cain, thank you for uh, for joining me. Uh, people can find your work. I would imagine the best spot would be through Twitter and, and as I mentioned earlier, it's at Cain underscore Matt. Yeah, definitely. Um, hockeygraph, hockey-graph.com too for a bit of a bit of my writing. But uh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. No problem. You uh, you enjoy the rest of uh, your evening, and I, I think I've kept you long enough to miss the start of Washington Tampa. So I'll let you go right at this very moment. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks.